Welcome to the Project Zion podcast. This podcast explores the unique spiritual and theological gifts Community of Christ offers for today's world. Going back to you, so you joining the RLDS, which is now Community of Christ, you weren't joining a one true church. No, I, I did not see myself as joining one true church. And the, from a world church <clears throat> perspective, world church wasn't even claiming that when you joined? When I joined the church, the at least the denominational officers and the 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 information and material that they were promoting from headquarters had moved beyond a, a single institutional one true church. Even though a lot of the general membership would have still been in the so, Some of the state. membership are still struggling with that right. 40 years later. Uh, that move, that the question about one true church came up almost in the same way my questions came up uh, when I went to Korea. Uh, Chuck Naff, uh, Charles Naff, was a member of the Twelve Apostles, and in the Is after, he the one that went to India. Well, yes, he's the one that that eventually went to India. But his uh, first places that he went was in in the aftermath of the Korean War to both Korea and Japan. Oh, okay, and then India was about five years later. Uh, so, but but when he went to to Japan and uh, Korea had had a lot of Christianity already. So the questions were a little different. Japan never really has had much of a Christian influence there. Uh, and so in, in 60, 50, no, he went in 50, 55, maybe 1955. Um, Japanese people were saying, well, well, we don't care. All the only literature we had was we're not the Mormons and this is why we're true and they're not. The Japanese are saying, well, okay, fine, but, but what is Christianity and why is that important? And so, so Chuck Neff began this early on raising the questions with other church leaders saying, well, we don't have a message. We need a message there. Right. Like how beneficial is this missionary work? Right. Uh, does this story of Joseph Smith in New York even relate to people, right. let alone Christianity? Does Jesus Christ relate to right. these people? Yeah. So, so that, that evolved, uh, uh, with, with his work in Asia. And so Japan and Korea and, and India were the three Asian, uh, areas where Neff worked over a period of 10 or more years, uh, evolved in the late sixties to a, a, uh, series of, of, uh, 1967, I think there was a, the 12 and the presidency got together and did some studies about, you know, what, what is the church all about? And in a global context, what is, what is our message that, uh, they had a seminar and out of that seminar came a, a whole rethinking of, well, then what, what are the basic beliefs of the church? And, uh, you know, using the, what, what the LDS call the Articles of Faith as kind of a starting point. And well, okay, we believe in God the Father, God the Eternal Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. Well, what does that mean for us? And so they, they ended up with a 19 point, very voluminous theological study of those basic ideas of faith and uh, explored them deeply. And those were published in the Saints Herald. Uh, serially, and then in 1970, as a book called "Exploring the Faith," um, it missed the audience. It was written in very high-level graduate school sort of jargony. You know, they were papers that would be something you might write in a graduate school theological study, and so the bulk of the audience of the church just—it was over the tops of their heads. Didn't influence them much. Didn't influence them much. I mean, they, they knew things were shifting and things were changing, and that all became the underpinnings of curriculum and whatever development that was being issued. Uh, but even even I read that book early on, and uh, uh, I don't consider myself, you know, necessarily super well educated. But I I've, I've done a lot of reading and study, and I have a hard time reading and understanding that book. Uh, it's like, gee, could you have chosen harder vocabulary and longer sentences? Right. Um, you know, let's, I, I prefer to try and be as direct as possible. But anyway, um, 
it it still had a hard time trickling down into the uh, masses of the church in the United States in the English-speaking world because most other language groups don't even have access to the material. Yeah, there's just between the two faith traditions from LDS and Community of Christ. Community of Christ, from my perspective, has a lot harder time getting out a message that from top down. Right, yeah. So world leaders may be in one place theologically. That's right. It doesn't mean like so-and-so in this state and this congregation is getting that message right. at all. Right, that's right. So like you can ask the question of like, where's the church at with polygamy? Where's the church at with missionary work? And it's not really a question that can be asked with community of Christ because people are so invariably stuck in different eras of the church. So like this congregation may be up to par where the church was at in 1960 or 1984 or whatever, you know. Uh, in, in Independence, of course, you know, we have a large population of church membership since its headquarters. Uh, I, there's probably 30 or 40 congregations in, in the metropolitan area of, well, the eastern Jackson County. And uh, <clears throat> almost every congregation has a different personality. The congregation that I attend regularly is somewhat liberal, uh, but but not not fully liberal. I mean, there's a, still a spectrum of people there. There's a congregation kind of on the opposite side of, of independence. I went there to attend a friend's uh, ordination, and I felt like I'd step back to 1954. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was very, very different personalities, very different focus and emphasis on what was important. And, you know, that, that congregation still having Book of Mormon classes every middle of the week and right it's just not near as top down there's a lot more autonomy within each yeah yeah that's right yeah make choices for yeah. themselves now you know there is there is curriculum you know published by the church but it's not enforced on everybody yeah um, just to follow the liturgical calendar yeah, following the liturgical calendar and and you know i've i've been part of uh, composing a lot of that material in the time that I worked for the church. And I think there's some good material there, but you know, there are some people where that's, you know, they're, they're beyond that level of wanting to study something. And, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of hard to write one thing fits all in a community of Christ context. So you served throughout the nineties in Asia. You said you sold your house and when your son went off to Graceland and you were over in Korea and various places. From what I've heard, you were also part of Correlation. And it's, what, what's Correlation in Community of Christ? What does that look like? Was it different from the LDS now that we're explaining the culture of every congregation being uh, different? Correlation in its very basic definition simply means to make sure the message is consistent through all the material. Um, now, in the LDS language, that means something a lot deeper. Right. They go 10 uh, steps further. It's a lot further than that. And and what I was doing, we didn't call it correlation. Uh, but from, from about 2009 until I retired last year, uh, I, I was the First Presidency's chief content editor. And uh, I reviewed uh, – I didn't review every single thing because I was a I was a single person shop, uh, but but major pieces that were being published as curriculum for the most part, some other things too. Um, uh, I would review and make sure that the messages that that the presidency, as they were interpreting sections of the Doctrine and Covenants and the focus of the church, that those messages were consistently applied and portrayed in those materials. Um, you know, Christ's mission is our mission is very different from our mission is Christ's mission. Yeah. Now, you know, a lot of writers would flip that and say our mission is Christ's mission. Well, that, that language, the president of the church, very specifically, it's Christ's mission is our mission, and Christ is the key of that key driver of the mission, not us. Uh, so those kinds of things was what I was on the prowl for, uh, making sure that uh, the theological interpretations in articles was fitting, particularly Steve Vesey's uh, uh 
messages uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants and and some of his other speaking. In fact, in fact, uh, Steve Vesey asked me to look at a lot of his his uh, sermon manuscripts that when he gave addresses to the church to make sure even he was being consistent with what he had been saying because you know we we get into a mode of of uh trying to speak and uh say things and uh and and I did not I did not tell Vizi what to say when I reviewed his material uh but I would say well now Steve I want to make sure I'm understanding this phrase because in previous stuff you've said something similar, but it's gone this way, and and it's okay. He's president of the church; he can change the message, right? Uh, and so, more for my clarification than calling him to task because it was my job to follow his lead in in how he was interpreting uh, the messages that uh, we wanted to put out there as a denomination. And so consistency was what was important. Uh, and so I was the consistency editor, I guess. More than just how LDS understand correlation. That goes so far that the correlation committee and the LDS is even editing what the apostles are saying. Well, I you know, I did edit articles and things that were written by members of the 12 and raised, uh, you know, my job was to raise questions to them and to point, you know, I didn't have final say. The authors had final say. That may be a key difference. Mm -hmm. As I would go my, do my run through and I, I used Microsoft Word with its track changes function and I would add comments to the side saying, well, uh, I had one, one article came through from one of the members of the 12 and he had Jesus speaking Hebrew. And uh, I had to put a comment and say, well, actually, Jesus didn't speak Hebrew. Uh, they read Hebrew in the synagogue when they read scriptures, maybe. But Jesus spoke Aramaic. <laughs> and uh, the Hebrew scriptures had already been, were available in Aramaic. So it may be that he was actually reading in Aramaic. So uh, one of the things, uh, big words that has kind of been in play in community of Christ is shalom. Which is the Hebrew word for you know for peace, peace be with yeah. you or whatever, and uh, so this article the apostle said, well now when Jesus greeted people and said shalom to them, right. So if Jesus were a, a historical person, he wouldn't have been saying shalom to right. anybody. He, in in Aramaic, he would have said salam, which is the same as Arabic for that word. And you know, I said we need to be not only consistent with our own message, but we need to be accurate to the context of what we're talking about at least somewhat on par with biblical scholarship right right yeah just being yeah. Very and, and uh, you know and it's like in the temple in independence uh we have a, what's called the worshiper's path which comes uh in a curving uh slope upwards uh, one story mm -hmm. and there's artwork along that path right uh, and there's one bas relief sculpture beautiful sculpture of uh, called the prodigal son we had a tour guide, all volunteers, uh, well-meaning people. We had a, the Presbyterians had had a convention in Kansas City and brought over some busloads of pastors, Presbyterian ministers. The tour guide's telling these Presbyterian ministers about this beautiful sculpture of Jesus welcoming the prodigal son. Oh no! Well, uh, those are the kinds of things that I was on the lookout for. Uh, slip of the tongue. Not knowing the biblical stories well enough to, uh, well, how do we interpret the prodigal son? Well, Jesus always comes in there. Jesus told the story. So it was probably just a slip of the tongue, but right. it was rather embarrassing because several of the Presbyterian ministers, as they left and left comments, pointed that out. Prodigal son is a parable. It was, it was a little bit embarrassing. Uh, and that that can happen to anybody. Doesn't matter who, where, when, or what. But uh, right. yeah. So correlation. I certainly nothing on the scale of what's done in the LDS Church. Uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, an institution needs to maintain some level of integrity of their message. And um, uh, you know, when historically when correlation got started in the LDS Church. You had the Relief Society publishing their own magazine and their own lessons. You had the Sunday School Department publishing their own magazine and their lessons. And uh, they weren't always teaching the same doctrine. So there was a need to do something 
back in, and I think it was, I think maybe it was Harold B. Lee who led that charge when he was in the 12, maybe just at the time he became president of the church. I'm not sure where that all, I can't remember the exact history of that, but it was maybe in the 60s. Uh, there, there was a real need to make sure everybody was was preaching the same doctrine. But, you know, and you, you have to decide, you know, what's the boundary? What's the parameter? And the community of Christ is decidedly a little broader as far as, you know, what's the official doctrine of the church? We don't have lots of official doctrines in community of Christ. We have generally accepted right, so <laughs> doctrines, have, maybe. We have like, yeah, the enduring principles and the five, the mission initiatives. Yeah, the, the little, uh, the booklet called Sharing in Community of Christ mm-hmm. is kind of the, the basic handbook of what the church is, is promoting and believing and thinking about mission, about values, about beliefs, and about stewardship. Uh, what we call disciples' generous response, along with the newest sections of the doctrine and, and, and then covenants. then you add to that the newest sections in the doctrine and covenants, and uh, uh, you know that that kind of gives you a good picture of of where we are now in our thinking, and that will always change mm-hmm. as as we deal with things in the world, as we come up against ethical and moral questions that have not been dealt with in the past, perhaps. Uh, we deal with cultural contexts of people who uh, don't have the same foundational information as others. Uh, and so we, we have to always be on our guard to try and find ways to for the church to fit in with them rather than to force them to fit in with the church. And that, that's a key difference, too, maybe. There's a little more flexibility on our part you know, what the church might look like in different cultural contexts. Right, a lot more flexibility on the local level. Right, yeah. Determine what's the most important for that locality. I liked one of Steve Vesey's comments that he made a year or two ago saying that one man can't have the answers to every right. area. It takes multiple people yep. to address the issues that people encounter. So we had a dinner together the other night and I just want to bring into the conversation something we were talking about there that we found interesting is uh, going on wording and the way things are listed out. We were talking about the enduring principles and you brought up something about they're listed a certain way for a certain reason. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, probably uh, of anything that we have, the enduring principles are the most universal statement Mm-hmm. Uh, that that we've tried to get worldwide. Uh, Sharing in Community of Christ is probably our, our most widely translated book as far as the number of languages any single piece of church literature has been translated into. We, we've long looked uh, at statements of basic values, basic principles uh, that seem to be foundational to everything else that we do. And we've had over the years several different statements of what those are. Um, in the uh, mid-2000s, it, uh, it became something that uh, President Vesey became president of the church in 2005. Uh, he began to look for that uh, more than just statements of, you know, we believe in this and we believe in that, but what undergirds those beliefs? What mm-hmm. is it about us? And so um, various uh, committees in the church leadership began to look at defining those those basic values, those core values. And uh, it was a process of two or three years, published in 2008 finally. Uh, probably uh, of all the documents that have been produced by the church, the one with the broadest international influence, uh, there was probably 50 or 60 people involved in, uh, you know, as in groups, yeah, so some of the wording changes, the specific wording is because there was input from <clears throat> leaders in different countries. Right. Yeah, we had we had uh every every country and cultural group in the church and language group was represented and uh, they they hammered this stuff through um over a long period of time. Uh they'd have a gathering, they'd work out stuff, then they were told to take it home and think about it some more. I think originally there must have been what what have I heard? Thirty or forty, maybe as high as fifty state statements that were all uh, listed out. 
And those, those became defined to the nine statements that we have today. No one enduring principle is more important than the other. They're, they're all of equal value because they, they're the core values of the church. So there's, there's no priority in them. But there is a theological flow that, uh, seem to make sense to the committee. Um, certainly, you know, they begin with the foundation of, of what we call the Trinity, the community of God, Christ, and the Holy Spirit. That's foundational to the church. Without that, we're not a, a Christian church. We're something else. And so uh, you flow through those nine principles. And uh, um, so the foundation is the Trinity. And then from that, uh, we can extrapolate from God the idea of grace and generosity, sacredness of creation, continuing revelation, worth of all persons, all are called, responsible choices, pursuit of peace, unity and diversity, and blessings of community. And so we start with the community that is God, and we end up with the blessings of community that is us with God, and, and the whole series of nine enduring principles kind of circulate in that way. Uh, and it's, it's not necessarily step by step, but it's, it's just a natural theological flow of how we understand God and God's interaction with us and our interaction with God and our interaction with each other. Right. They all speak to each other. So if you're making responsible choices, then you're going to be pursuing peace. If you're pursuing peace, then you're going to value the community exactly yeah exactly um so uh and and it's you can study those in any order because each one individually can be studied uh but to change that natural theological progression would oh it, it's not going to cause eternal damage no. but uh uh it, it there's a i i think there's a real beauty in that flow and and i and i look at it the same way as the spiral of the temple in independence. You know, you start at one point and you end up at that center point, but then you can flow back down to the beginning point and it's just this continuous circular motion and uh, to, to be in movement in life and in our interactions with God is a really important thing, I think. Right, yeah, I like that. Then every, everything else then comes out of those enduring principles. From the foundation of the enduring principles, we can distill our mission initiatives. We can distill our basic theological statements, the basic beliefs. We can distill our our concepts of, of tithing and stewardship that we call disciples' generous response uh, because tithing is part of grace and generosity, which we get from God and which we, we need to give and receive generously. Uh, and uh, so for me, I, th I think this Statement of Enduring Principles, probably the single most important document that we've had in the church, maybe since Joseph Smith composed the Articles of Faith. I don't know. Hard to argue, but I, I can see that for sure. Yeah. So you've had this book, and this is going to have a new edition come out through Coford Books, Divergent Paths of the Restoration. And this goes all the way back to your seminary days. Do you want to talk about this book that you have? Yeah. Well, uh, I I did these four papers in seminary, four term papers: RLDS, Community of Christ, or uh, Church of Christ on the Temple Lot. Then uh, I just thought, well, I better balance this and do one on the LDS Church. And then I came up with a what then was a pretty. I thought it was a long list, but it turns out it was a rather brief list of fifty other. Uh, expressions of the movement, some some full-blown denominational organizations, some not quite. Um, so I got to BYU in my freshman year and uh, met up with a, a guy that was a church history nut like myself. And he said, oh, gosh, you ought to take that list of 50 others and expand that out. And so during my freshman year, when I wasn't studying for all of my heavy-duty courses, I was over at the library sifting through the special collections section on all those different groups. And, and in the spring of my freshman year, this, this uh, local publisher published the first edition of Divergent Paths of the Restoration. And uh, uh, it was April, of, April or May of 75. And uh, the, it's now the fourth edition was published 25 years ago, so it's really out of date. Um, uh, the first three editions uh, had somewhere 
in the neighborhood of about 180 that I had cataloged. Some, again, full-blown denominational structure, some single congregational structure, some individuals who were promoting a particular viewpoint that didn't fit, you know, with any of those organizations. And now on to the struggle of something that's not organized at all. Right. Still yeah. expression. Right. It. Some expression, yeah. And so over the intervening years since that f uh, fourth edition was published, I've, I was in Asia for many years and uh, just was accumulating all this data and information, but finally began to distill it into written form. And uh, so I've just, just this summer, uh, finished the manuscript for the fifth edition of Divergent Paths of the Restoration. Uh, and it has almost 500 expressions catalog. Oh, wow. So from the fourth edition catalog, 180. It's, it's, a, it's more than doubled yeah. since the fourth edition. And, and the manuscript size, uh, is also, uh, it's kind of a publishing quandary. It's 900 pages single spaced. Oh, wow. And, and that translates into, um, probably at least 750 printed pages in a book, which is too big for a single volume. That's quite the tone. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and it's too big for a single volume simply because of binding restrictions and the integrity of a book binding. Uh, so that's a real problem. The, um, uh, I, I signed with, uh, Greg Coford, uh, Coford, with Coford books, uh, to have it published. And we've talked about what we can do to get it into a one volume and how we might condense it. It's an encyclopedia. It's not, it's not a, a, a thesis or a dissertation. It's an encyclopedia. Uh, and so, yeah, so it has a full on numbering system, right? And there's a numbering system that's basically a, a, a decimal point outline system. Just you know, to you, track it out you have 1.0 mm -hmm. uh, as your first, you know, which which used to be on the other system would be Roman numeral 1, mm -hmm. and then 1.1, uh, 1.1.1. Uh, it's a decimal-based uh, outline system, and so each of the expressions will have a, a, a point on that chart sometimes it gets a little complicated and but but the decimal system was important to show the progression historically of you know here's here's group one but then here's a party that separated and then here's a party that separated from the separated group and there are a few occasions where i have maybe seven or eight levels of separation from the original the, the original group of that particular number and uh so that gets a little confusing and and nothing is straight line either no. because some people will bounce back or forward and uh one one group out in independence had started and then they merged with another group and then they separated again and uh and then from them another separation happened and so it it gets a little a little overly complex but but I had to find some system of kind of keeping those all together so that the reader the researcher could say oh yeah this guy this guy is connected with that guy and so on uh we don't have an index per se in the book we have several finding keys uh because I've got the numbering system instead of saying page 32 we can say c 4.1.2 and we can tell you what page that's on. But uh, when it gets to a point, uh, one of the finding keys will have all the names that are mentioned in the book. Well, here's one guy who was part of eight different groups. And each of those group, I'll call them serial numbers, outline numbers, will have, you know, that will be how he's listed in the finding key rather than all those page numbers. Um so there's an index or a, a finding key of uh, alphabetical, of uh, geographical, of chronological, um, uh, people's names, and uh, different church periodicals. Those kinds of things will all be in several finding keys in the book. And uh, it's 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 the entries are brief, uh, and and as brief as I could get it, the manuscripts still really huge. <laughs> Uh, we decided, uh, Coford staff and I decided that two volumes was not 
really an effective way to do the book. If we have to, we have to, but it would be great if it could be one volume, even though it might be thick. And that might translate into, uh, you know, I, their editor will look at it and see if he can we figure we only need to cut about 80 manuscript pages out of it to get it into one volume. So he's going to look, you know, read through the manuscript very carefully and find places where maybe I've spent way too much time listing basic beliefs of a group uh, or whatever and make some suggestions as to where we might cut. Uh, we're also considering doing a little bit smaller type than a normal book simply because it is a reference book. Uh, and uh, that has pros and cons. Uh, but, um, uh, there is so much variety, uh, of expressions of the original movement out there. Uh, and I've tried, I know that I don't have a complete catalog of everything that's on the internet. That stuff comes and goes so fast sometimes. Uh, and, and it's also hard to verify if it's legit. Yeah. It used to be anybody, you know, with a little bit of money could go to a printer and have something printed. And then we had the advent of photocopiers. And then all kinds of people could just print their own stuff. <laughs> and then we had the advent of the Internet, which has even expanded that even more. Uh, because you don't even have to pay for paper uh, at the photocopy shop. <laughs> you can just set up a website or a blog and have your own, create your own church. Uh, and there are a number of those uh, in the in the book that I've cataloged, and and uh, you know when if I can put a geographical location to and a name to the person who's promoting it, that tends to be a little more legitimate, even if it's just a single person who's promoting a proto church. You know, I'd, I'd like to have a church that does this, and this is the name I'd like it to be. But admittedly, I'm the only member so far. There's a there's some legitimacy to that than somebody who uses a pseudonym or no name at all uh, and just sets up a website and says, "Oh, we've got this." I had one one website showed up called the uh, oh what was the was it the Reformed Church of Jesus? I can't remember. And he was supposedly headquartered in Independence, Missouri, with a million members. Well, there isn't any Latter-day Saint group headquartered in the Independence, Missouri, Jackson County, anywhere in Missouri that has that many members, because I, I know all of them. Right. No <laughs> and, one outside of Lil. And, and if there was a, a denomination that was that big, there'd be some physical presence somewhere in the neighborhood. Right. But but the, the, this website didn't even provide a street address for where you could go to church. Um, and, uh, had a very elaborate, you know, oh, here's, you know, oh, here's the biography of our church president and here's all these different church leaders. And, uh, it was an extensive website. Well, I've, I've put it in a category that says unverifiable. I don't want to call it a fraud, uh, because I can't go and print with that, yes. <laughs> but I can't verify it either. But, but I want to keep it cataloged because it showed up you know, somewhere and a lot of people access the website. Um, so, you know, the, the bulk of the book, of course, is the LDS church. You know, you have it's just a simple numbers game. You have more members, you're going to have more possible separations that, that, yeah. that separate out expressions that separate out from that. And so, um, uh, that's that one section of the book that has all the LDS derived expressions is 350 pages out of that 900 pages. Um, so you know, there's a section on the original church, the the first original church, which which is 1.0, that's okay. Joseph Smith. And then there's section two, which is the second expression of the original church, which was led by Sidney Rigdon and Brigham Young for just a few weeks. <laughs> and then uh, section three becomes James Strang. Historically, he was the first one to organize and call himself a prophet. Uh, Sidney Rigdon's right behind that. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but the main expressions then, uh, of the, uh, there's six main expressions of the original church that survived into the 20th century and now the 21st century. And so that's James Strang, Brigham Young, Joseph Smith III, um, William Bickerton, uh, Granville Hedrick, and, uh, Alpheus Cutler. Okay. Right. And so those are the six, main denominational expressions that came out of the original that survived the milieu of the what what I've 
uh, what what historians are calling the fragmentation era, mm-hmm. which runs from about eighteen from the time of Joseph Smith's death until perhaps the mid eighteen sixties or a little later, uh, where people were still seeking and searching and looking, and there were just you know literally hundreds of expressions you know emerged, and today there's still about a hundred and twenty expressions that are uh, extant. Uh, again, the LDS Church, Community of Christ are the two biggest. Um, after that, you would have, and I'll lump them all together, the, the fundamentalist Mormons. Right, the ones uh, practicing polygamy. And, and the ones practicing polygamy, yeah. Now, and, and, but then though, there are several groups of those that, right. that are listed separately. Uh, uh, then uh, the uh, William Bickerton Church of Jesus Christ in Monongahela, Pennsylvania, uh, is uh, one of the next ones. Then maybe the Church of Christ Temple Lot is the next one in size, but but in you know phenomenally smaller. Uh, Community of Christ has about two hundred thousand members. Uh, all the fundamentalist Mormon groups combined might have about fifty thousand or sixty thousand. Uh, it's really hard to tell. It, it, it's hard to really get uh, uh, that. <clears throat> and it, and if I broke those into the separate denominational groups, they'd be further down the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Bickerton uh, William Bickerton's uh, Church of Jesus Christ at Monongahela, Pennsylvania, has about twenty five to thirty thousand. Church of Christ Temple Lot has somewhere around 8,000. The uh, Alpheus Cutler's Church has about 12. Uh, so, you know, there's a big gaps as you go down that list in numbers. So, uh, you know, the LDS Church comprises the biggest, you know, the section of the book just because the numbers, anytime you have a 1,000 people, you're going to have one or two that are going to have a different idea. <laughs> <laughs> just a matter of statistics. But I want to bring that back to Joseph Smith because I find this whole conversation so fascinating because Joseph Smith was deeply troubled by sectarianism of, man, this is confusing. What of all this could even possibly be true when everybody's opinion differs so much? And he wanted to create a church to end all churches, right? a church that ended sectarian strife. And all he did through the movement is create a a whole slew of more expressions of Christianity, some more traditionally Christian than others. Right. Yeah. The the idea of unity or uh, uniformity is just simply anti-human, <laughs> anti-human nature. It is. Um, yeah. Now, Community of Christ has struggled to try uh, the one of the enduring principles being unity and diversity. Right. The diversity isn't just race and language, but but also, you know, diversity in in how you approach basic beliefs, basic theology. Right, where somebody is at uh, in their understanding. It it's it's really it's tough to do. Because when I go to a Sunday school class and somebody says something that's way out of where I'm at, mm-hmm. And I start to challenge them. Well, then people start taking sides. I mean, that's just human nature. Yep. Well, no, I, oh, I think he's wrong. I agree with him. Or no, no, I agree with her. And, uh, well, you know, we have, we see that in, in, uh, the American political divide these days. Um, uh, there's not just two major political parties, but you've got subsets of those political parties that are, They'd probably fill up a whole book if I were to write the divergent paths of the American political system. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so it is just, it's human nature to, uh, form an opinion. And the community of Christ has tried really hard to, to at least have broad boundaries where we can allow for a lot of that diversity of thinking. But even then, there's a limit to institutional integrity. Right. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't know what we would do if one of the apostles suddenly declared himself to be an atheist and no longer believed in God and was going to refuse to invite people to Christ. I mean, you know, how can we be that diverse in our opinion? Uh, you know, that only question would come up if it happened. I guess. The, the question would come up if it happened. The question came up in the 1920s. Uh, nineteen uh, mid nineteen twenties, the president of the church at that time, 
put forth some legislation for the conference to consider that vested in the first presidency the final say-so on the direction of the church. Well, that became known by, for the time, what was really an unfortunate nickname, Supreme Directional Control. That's worse than correlation. Uh (laughs) And uh, a member of the bishopric and two of the apostles left the church in opposition to that and founded another (laughs) anti-denomination. And they eventually became reconciled and came back in and were reinstated to their uh, offices. At least one of them was. And so, obviously, then the boundaries were a little tighter. Uh, uh, we, we, can, we can openly uh, 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 disagree these days. We, we have, there's a document that explains how we deal with what we call faithful disagreement that kind of outlines you know, how to keep the peace and still have this disagreement. Um, but it's it's human nature, uh, you know. The the same, you know. Put a thousand people in a room, and you're not going to get a uniform response to practically anything. It's hard to do hold space out for somebody else. Yeah, you're yeah. Philosophically, so different from each yeah. other, but it's just something that you have to ask yourself: um, Do we seek unity through uniformity, or can we hold out space for people right. to be? Authentic enough to to at least express that, yeah, I'm not exactly on the same I, I was in Los Angeles uh, and, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, and we confronted that directly with women in the priesthood. Uh, we had one congregation that they weren't preaching against the church. They were just holding out saying, we just don't have a testimony that that's what ought to be done. Okay. And so we don't want any female people coming to preach from the stake uh, officers, from the area officers. Um, and if they come, uh, many of us won't show up to church because we and, – and we go to a conference. And if we have communion and our row happens to be served by a woman, we won't take communion. Uh, but but they weren't uh, carrying a chip on their shoulders. They they were just saying, we don't have a testimony of it. We choose not to participate in that. And uh, we were able to, to retain them in the bounds of the fellowship where so many others were leaving because they were in jurisdictions perhaps where the leadership was not quite so amenable. Uh, but, but I have to give this congregational leader, the, their leaders and members credit too because they, they weren't denouncing the denomination vocally and and aggressively uh so it was a two-sided thing but yeah. but but we maintained peace for many years and uh i had a good rapport with folks in that congregation as did several of the others of the stake officers at the time and uh uh you know we we had priesthood members there all male but uh they they paid their tithing they were you know they were fully engaged in everything except ordaining, ordaining women, women and participating with women. and participating with that. Um, and I, I count that as one of the great successes of our leadership team was to be able to do that and, and that congregation too, to be willing to maintain unity in spite of the fact that we were not uniform. Uh, so I think that's a, a good example of how it can be if everybody's willing to it has to go both ways. It has right? to go both ways, yeah. and and no, neither party was was demanding it had to be our way or the highway. Uh, now, now that the stake president at the time was feeling that way, uh, you know, well, you know, everybody has to do this, and uh, several of us in the stake leadership said, "Well, now wait a minute, why? Um, you know, does does one congregation have to comply?" If the leadership, because the priesthood calls are given through the, uh, done by the pastor of the congregation. If I'm pastor and I don't have any testimony that so-and-so should be called to the priesthood, I'm not going to put in a call for them. I'm not going to put the paperwork through the system. Um, you can't come and impose that on me. That's not our way in the community of Christ. Uh, other areas of the church in the U.S. were not so successful. And there, there's still a lot of hurt feelings and pain out there 30 years later yeah, or so, uh, which is really, really sad. That's, you know, everybody was trying to do their best, but. Yeah, definitely uh, an understatement. You know, but 
so, you know, I, I think there's, it can be, but there's still limits. I mean, you know, I don't know that we can be wholly unified in every aspect of everything. Uh, that's a, maybe that enduring principle is more of a, we value that, but it's a big goal kind mm-hmm. of a thing. This is kind of what brings us together. This would be ideal if we could achieve it. So when is your book coming out? Is there a um, time frame? I, I, uh, at this point, there's, the editor still has to get through it. He won't do that till after the first of the year. Look for it sometime 2018. It, if it's next year, it'll be late in the year. My my guess is it'll be 2019. Okay. But the book's already out of date, <laughs> even before the editor looks at it, um, <clears throat> simply because those things keep processing and progressing and people keep having new ideas. Um, the one, the one value we have is that we've put it on a cloud thing so that whatever, you know, I can still be updating and adding to it, uh, while we're in process. And, uh, so we'll do that up to a point. There's, there'll be a point where we have to say, no, this is, we've got to go to typesetting. Uh, but, uh, for the next couple of months, you know, we can still keep a little bit of updating going on, but. And through it all, you've, from what I've heard, become friends with one of these expressions of faith so well that you're kind of the liaison to them. Which group is this? I'm, I'm blessed to be, uh, on friendly terms with, uh, Alpheus Cutler's Church of Jesus Christ. Fine group of people, small group of people. There's, there's only maybe 10 or so on Sundays at church. They're in independence. They're all cousins, uh-huh. uh, two families basically that, that have survived the, the, the century and a half or so. Um, good people, hardworking people. Uh, they try to live, uh, as much as possible with some mixed marriages, all things in common, where, where they, once their houses are free and clear of mortgage, they donate them to the church and they live in those houses until they die and church takes care of things. But, uh, uh, became good friends with their previous president, Stan Whiting. And when he passed away a few years ago, they asked me to do his funeral. You know, I, I can't even take communion when I go to this church because <laughs> yeah. that's their tradition. And, uh, and that's okay. I don't mind not being able to do that. And they feel bad because they like me. And if, so I try not to show up to church on communion Sunday, which they do once a month, uh, just so we can alleviate those awkwardness. Yeah. Uh, but, but they, they asked me if I would please do the funeral for their president and prophet. And, uh, in the process of that, I think we became even closer, uh, in, in our friendship and, and, and Christian fellowship, uh, wonderful people. I, I was honored and, uh, blessed by being able to take part in that and provide pastoral ministry to not just the widow and her family, but the whole church, because they're all cousins. Yeah. And, uh, a rich blessing to know those people and to, to be, uh, have, have shared some of those, uh, those scenes of, of normal human life and existence. Uh, but, but, you know, through all of that, I've, I've, I've gotten to know lots of different church leaders, uh, presidents and prophets and apostles, uh, from many different perspectives have, you know, two or three, uh, leaders of the, William Bickerton group that, that I've, I've been on good terms with. Uh, Fred Larson of the Remnant Church in Independence is, is I consider him a good friend. Uh, uh, just, you know, the list of those folks is really long. So that's, that's been a rich experience. But, and and I, I've tried in the book to be honest and as objective as possible in presenting their stories. There's, I, I've, I, I hope I've worked hard. There's no apologetics in there. I'm not promoting one church over the other. Uh, some of these folks are saying, oh, do you really have to put us in your book? You know, we're just so embarrassed that the church has been broken up and is split up into so many. And saying, well, it is what it is. And you can choose to be embarrassed about it, or uh, you can choose to revel in the diversity and say, wow, look at look at all of this variety of expressions that came out of a teenage boy going into a grove of trees saying, what should I do? Where does my faith journey take me? Which church is right? 
and uh, I think it is beyond Joseph's wildest imaginations. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, since it was not even, you know, his goal was to have a unified group, but to have all these expressions. And, and it's fascinating to read, you know, all the different revelations, the different Sidney Rigdon's revelations that he produced later when he was his own church president and prophet. Uh, fascinating reading. You know, yeah. Just really interesting reading. Yeah, I haven't looked out of those. And, and you know, and I, I try not to make a judgment uh, in the book. Um, and, and, you know, and I've, I've said many times, I, I think I've even said it earlier as we were talking, who am I to say that God can't or didn't speak to someone or do something? Now, my personal faith tells me one thing. Right, so you may... Um... But to, to really look at history objectively, to really look at these things objectively, I've got to step out of my personal faith mode so, you know, my, my personal faith has me well into community of Christ. And, uh, you know, there's no, I have no questions about that. Uh, I've been 36 years. You know, that's been most of my, uh, more of my life than being LDS mm-hmm. now. Uh, but, but you know, it, it's not my place to limit God if God is unlimited. Exactly. You know, that's, so that the, the book comes from that perspective as much as I've been able to make it. And, uh, uh, nothing really terribly bizarre in some, you know, some one or two of the groups have some oddities but uh, there's you know, none of them are terribly bizarre I, I think most of them that are in the book are sincere people who really believe that God has called them to do a certain thing and, and I, I think we can honor that without having any damage to our personal faith or take on that faith as our own personal journey at the same time you know we can honor somebody else's expression. That's, yeah, that's just wonderful. Also beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Steve. It's been a very fascinating story listening to you and your experiences. And for those that know you, this will be interesting to listen to as well and fun to go through. And those that didn't know you before, we'll get to know you a bit better. So. Thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for listening to Project Zion Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming service you use. And while you are there, give us a five-star rating. Project Zion Podcast is sponsored by Latter-day Seeker Ministries of Community of Christ. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are of those speaking and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Latter-day Seeker Ministries or Community of Christ. The music has been graciously provided by Dave Hines. Dave Hines